Hey everyone, this is Brian Hertel. I edit the CoinWorld podcast and I'm here to let you know about another fun and free product we offer through CoinWorld, our email newsletters. With our newsletters, you can pick from 10 options like US coins, world coins, or paper money to tailor the high quality content you receive. Pick the topics that interest you most or choose them all and get the latest from CoinWorld delivered straight to your inbox. Signing up is free and easy to do. I've put a link in the show notes for you, so just click there, choose your content, and your email newsletters will be on the way shortly. Click on that link today and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome back to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And this week, we have an interview with Leonard Augsburger of the Newman Numismatic Portal and also well-known numismatic author. We're also going to explore the usual history, uh, coin world history, numismatic history, and we're going to try to stump you with a few trivia questions. And we're going to talk about something that's big in the news right now. That is the 2020 W. Jefferson 5-cent coins. But first, Chris. As always, we'd like to humbly ask of our uh, listeners that if you enjoy this week's episode, if you've enjoyed any of our previous content, um, please remember to subscribe. Every subscription, every listen that we get on an individual episode, all of that is uh, is helpful to us. It means a lot to us. And it's really easy to subscribe. You can find this podcast on pretty much any podcast platform. So please recommend it to friends, colleagues, acquaintances, people you meet on the train, anyone who you think might enjoy some historical and numismatic programming. Please encourage them to listen. Keep on listening. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe. And speaking of subscriptions, if you have a CoinWorld subscription, you would have seen on the front page of January 27th dated issue, Paul Joke's story. Paul is our senior editor who covers the U.S. Mint. Paul has a story that notes that this year, three 2020 annual sets, so that's the proof set, the silver proof set, and the uncirculated coin set, these three sets will include a 2020 W Jefferson 5-cent coin with one of three different finishes. Now, this is on the heels of what the U.S. Mint did in 2019 with the Lincoln Sense included in three annual sets. You could also perhaps mention the U.S. Mint's efforts at putting W Mint marks on quarter dollars last year. That will continue this year. It's interesting because previously we have cents and we have the dime if we're looking at the 1996 W Roosevelt dime. So now we're going to have a nickel so you can complete the trifecta and of course, then, well, and then you could also get the um, the, uh, the quarters. Sure. <laughs> you got to add the quarters and you could also do a uh, West Point minted Boolean. I mean, obviously, Boolean is not meant for circulation. And though the 2019 W Lincoln cent and the 2020 W Jefferson nickel aren't really intended for circulation because they're being included in proof sets. I'll say, though, that I think we tend to think of circulating coinage as being base metal coinage. So if you really wanted to go uh, to go wild and really have a complete West Point set, you'd also need to acquire the gold and silver bullion examples if you really wanted to get all the coinage produced at the West Point Mint facility. 
I'm just liking this idea of circulating denominations with the WMIT mark. And oh, I love that. It, it's it's it gives people a fun thing to look for. It gives you a reason, another reason to dig through your change to try to find, you know, to find that elusive W. And it also gets people aware of the fact that there are you know more mints than just Philadelphia and Denver. There's San Francisco for approves, and there's West Point for Boolean and the occasional odd base metal coin. So I like it too. I'm, I'm glad they're doing that. I think it's a neat thing. And yes, these are in sets, and, and just like last year, there were the uh, special cents in sets. Hopefully, the execution of this will go a lot better than in 2019 when the cents were damaged in transit because of inadequate packaging. That cost the mint quite a bit because collectors, to replace them, they had to send the whole set back at the mint's cost, and then the whole set would be sent again with the bonus coin. It is an incentive, of course, to buy these annual sets, which in recent years, aside from a few standouts, the sets are generally, they trade at the issue price, and then a few years later, you can get them cheaper as items enter the secondary market. That's not the case with a couple pieces like some of the uh, the baby congratulations sets and things. But in general, the annual sets are hot at first, or at least popular sales go because people want to get them in the same year of issue. I've given uh, the, the congratulations sets to different family and friends for their newborns. This is an incentive to get those sales of those sets out there. Sometimes you even see dealers will break apart the sets and sell the coins individually. They'll get them slabbed and then they have the rest of the set to to sell otherwise. There's any number of ways that the issue can be sliced and diced as it were. But I think the overall message of this is, you know, the U.S. Mint is, is listening to customers for the most part, some who want variety and something different and something special. Give me a reason to buy this annual set as opposed to it just being, you know, whatever fill in the date year dated coins. And then, you know, five years down the road, it sells for 20, 30% less than issue price. So it's a neat incentive. I collect more world stuff, so I'm not going out and going to rush out and get these. But maybe you, Chris, or maybe the listeners, this is um, something that they're excited about. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I I like the West Point stuff just because I find sort of the recent history of the West Point Mint kind of interesting. And I generally enjoy trying to get coins from all kinds of different mints around the world. I find U.S. mint history and world mint history really interesting. So the West Point's mints, relatively short but interesting sort of contribution to that history definitely attracts me to them. And programs like this are the littlest bit gimmicky in the sense that like it's clear that the, to me at least, it's relatively (sighs) clear that the mint is tapping the gas a little bit and trying to generate interest. But that said, and and I think your comment is, is prescient, that, you know, the Mint is responding to, to customer demand, trying to make each set a little bit more distinctive and a little bit more interesting. I do wonder whether we'll see the W Mint mark applied to any other denomination. I mean, it's already been applied to the cent. Now it's, I think the nickel probably was the last denom. Yeah, I guess the nickel was the last denomination to which the W Mint mark could be applied because it was, it was on the cent in 2019. It's on the quarter in 2019 and into 2020. It's been on the do- the American Silver Eagle. I guess. Yeah, I guess the only coin that hasn't been on is the half dollar. If they did like a if they did like a twenty if they did a twenty twenty one half dollar or twenty twenty one W half dollar that um that would be kind of interesting. What, what and, about what about small dollars? Uh, I guess I, I guess they haven't been on the the Sacagawea Native American or Presidential Dollar series. So maybe uh 
Maybe when George H.W. Bush's uh, presidential dollars are eventually struck and put into circulation, which is presumably going to happen this year. I don't think President Trump has signed the legislation yet, but it was on his desk in the last couple of weeks. The uh, Congress passed it. So I like it. I'll probably try to get myself one either once they're broken out of the sets and sold individually, or I'll just go to the Mint site and buy one of the sets and get my W nickel. So Here, on that note, so, so we're, we're, we're chronicling uh, sort of unfolding numismatic history. But what was going on further back in history, Jeff? So let's uh, hop into the magical time machine uh, because it was on February 6th, 1937. Now, 1937 doesn't stand out as sort of a, oh, yeah, I, I immediately know what was happening in that year. You know, 1936, you could say, oh, there was all the commemorative coins, but 37 is a different year. But this is there very were a commemoratives in 1937, but not huh? nearly as many as 36. But, you know, as far as things of immediate that, that immediately come to mind, if I say 1909, I can bet what you're going to say. You know, if I say you 1913, consent. you know, there's a good chance you might say the Liberty had nickel. So uh, what was happening? Uh, I would actually say Buffalo nickel because that's the year it was introduced. But that's well, that too. I, that's, I, I understand the point you make. Straddles straddles the line there. Indeed so what, what happened on February 6, 1937, that was when thousands, thousands, our chronicler of history does not give a, a specific number, but thousands of 1933 St. Gaudens gold $20 double eagles were sent to the refinery for melting. That, of course, is a and most uh, auspicious coin, been the subject of much litigation, much uh, you know, effort from the federal government to pursue these in the 30s and 40s. Of course, not nearly all of the, the coins were melted in that effort. Many escaped. The questionable history and heritage of those pieces has been told and retold in the pages of Coin World and at least two books, uh, one by Alison Frankel. The story is out there, and there are 10 examples known that the U.S. Mint is holding in Fort Knox. So, and of course, the one that is legal to own that was sold in 2002 uh, in New York City, it is a most auspicious and important coin. So that is why it grabbed my attention for this week in history. Now, speaking sense. of speaking of another coin uh, of spurious origins, what was happening this week in Coin World? Well, we decided to go with 2013, and it was by chance that this was the cover story or one of the two cover stories of the Coin World issue, January 28th, 2013. What was going on then? Well, PCGS, the grading service, offered a reward for 1964D peace dollars. Now, this is a coin that, by nearly all accounts, was never officially issued, are probably illegal to own, certainly to buy or sell. It's even a stretch to call them coins as they were never monetized for use in commerce. The U.S. Mint considers them trial strikes. And so that was big news this week, and it was even the subject of then-editor Steve Roach's editorial, from which I was just reading. Since the time of their productions, rumors have circulated that a handful escaped and are now clandestinely held in collections. The PCGS was trying to... They offered a $10,000 reward just for the opportunity to examine one of the trial strikes. Now, that's one of those situations where I think if you claimed your prize, you may have won the battle but lost the war. 
<laughs> I was going to say, it's not as though if if law enforcement got involved, if someone brought forward a coin and PCGS gave him 10 grand, I have to imagine that even if PCGS lets you get out the door, I suspect you'd probably be receiving a visit from some form of law enforcement to ask you yeah. about it. So that $10,000, it, it was a nice publicity stunt because, you know, as far as we know, we've never heard. I'm sure PCGS would have said something if it had worked. But $10,000, that might get you a, a lawyer on retainer. I don't think it would come anywhere near the cost of whatever litigation would result if <laughs> uh, somebody came public with one of those pieces. Talk about a disincentive for people to come forward and turn these things in. If that was something that the, the government was serious about, it's like, if you want to get them back, Punishing people who bring them forward probably uh, isn't necessarily an effective strategy to go about shaking these coins out of the woodwork, but should they exist, which, as you said, we're not uh, entirely clear on. We've heard reports and and different folks have said things, of course, can this be proven? Is there, you know, what kind of veracity is there to these reports? I don't really know. Uh, Some folks, Paul, speaking of Paul jokes, has written about the story and, and talked to several dealers who've said to have maybe had witness of these or heard of these things being out there. I'm not really sure the the story, so I don't want to, I don't want to mix it up, but it is a coin that is most famous and certainly part of numismatic lore. It's sort of a Bigfoot coin. It's endless searching, endless speculation. You know, there's there's that video that everyone says is real or fake or whatever. So it's a, so Yeah, quite a rare coin. So the editorial page of January 28th, 2013's Coin World is uh, sort of interesting as well. Uh, A letter from a reader entitled, We Need Fewer Denominations, argues, you know, talking about the addition of the W mint mark on the uh, Jefferson nickel five cent coin. The letter reads, the U.S. Mint only needs to continue producing three coin denominations for circulation, the five cent coin, quarter dollar, and half dollar. Prices on retail and wholesale goods can still be mark to the cent, merely round to the aggregate total of the purchase to the nearest five cents. For collectors, the mint is enterprising. It could extend the reign of the cent and dime through their use in the annual collector sets. Sort of echoes the uh, echoes the 2020 W theme there. However, if the mint really wanted to increase its bottom line and please collectors, parenthetically, it would have a lucrative opportunity. The Mint has very talented designers and engravers who have plenty of artistic ideas. Put that talent and the availability of non-circulating denominations together by creating annual commemorative reverses. As an example, the Sacagawea Native American reverses are exemplary. We need some new change. Written by Tony Grant from East Quagu. I, th- I think it's like Quahog almost, like the uh, fictional Yeah, town, see, but... I-, I thought of Quahog, but there's no age. Yeah, like, like the home well, of uh, the I, Griffin you know, family, I don't, family guy. I don't know that you need it, – it's certainly a, a native We're gonna say name. East. We're going to say East Quahog and New York, and if there are any denizens of East Q-U-O-G-U-E who want to write me an email and tell me how to Holy. pronounce it properly, I will amend my statement here, but I'm just going to call it Quahog for now. Giggity. East Quahog, New York. So, Giggity, you know – as you know, reading these, uh, reading all these letters from uh, previous issues, you you know you see the same issues come up over and over. And but in the last couple decades, there has definitely been understandable agitation for the abolishment of the cent, talking about its how uneconomical it is to produce, and the mint could save money and you know cater to collector interests, as this letter alludes to by putting them into commemorative what? sets. 
it's an interesting issue and certainly one that I imagine will continue to be raised, though, if some of the statements made by David Ryder publicly are to be believed, then it doesn't seem like we're going to be getting rid of the scent anytime soon. As long as Arizona has copper mining interest and lobbyists and, and those mining interests have lobbyists, and as long as Iowa has political representation, Iowa being the home of the company that makes the blanks. There's also in Greenville, Tennessee, a company that makes blanks for coinage. So there are multiple places that have political stakes, jobs at at stake. And so local representatives in Congress are going to heed their pleas to well, keep the Senate so because for the, they want those for the foreseeable jobs. future. I for the foreseeable future, I guess our tax dollars will continue to subsidize those jobs, which I, I, I can understand that. Particularly, you know, their representatives are going to fight for the jobs in their districts or their states, and you know, makes a certain amount of sense. But a certain yeah. amount of sense, pun. Pun intended. Uh, pun so, mildly <laughs> intended. Pun, pun half intended. But at a certain point, I imagine that uh, if the expenditure increases enough and if public sort of exasperation with the continued issuance of the coins ever hits a certain pitch, I imagine that the political viability of the cent will be in question. But it does not seem as though we're very close to that sort of crossover point now. So we will likely continue to see the cent minted. One might think that or say that those representatives are very territorial about those jobs. Haha, <laughs> they are understandably territorial, and that makes for a lovely segue to our series of the week. So when Jeff and I were putting this episode together, um, it's actually I picked this series for the same reason that we picked uh, 2013 as the year for our This Week in Coin World history. Our guest, uh, Leonard Augsburger, as Jeff alluded to at the opening of this episode, he's the project coordinator for the Newman Numismatic Portal, which is... I believe the largest US-based numismatic online database, and it's named for Eric P. Newman, uh, a very famous American coin collector who had created a museum on the campus. Actually, it was initially, the museum was initially in a bank in downtown St. Louis, which is where uh, Eric P. Newman is from, and it was a money museum. It was, you know, celebrating coinage and it, uh, exhibiting uh, pieces from Newman's massive collection that he started in the 1940s, and Eventually, this museum was moved into Washington University at St. Louis, and that you know, was Newman's, in two thousand seven. Yep, and I got and, to go attend the uh, opening of that. Yeah, I actually, I think I've read your article about from the two thousand seven issue. I think I read your article about that. But anyway, so Newman's collection. He died at the age of one hundred and six in two thousand seventeen. Uh, in fact. It, this is, you know, you, you don't see numismatists break into the mainstream news very often, but the New York Times actually ran an obituary for him. But beginning in 2013, uh, his collection began to be sold off. But one of the last things he did was he endowed an organization to start digitizing a numismatic record. So not only scans of coins and things and a piece of his collection, they began scanning the literature in his collection. And he wanted to make this uh, massive database of numismatic information. Uh, available for researchers, numismatists, and interested members of the public. And so that became the Newman Numismatic Portal. So I decided that for the series of the week, we're going to talk about a series that is not really accessible to the uh, to the average collector, certainly not accessible to, to Jeff or I, but we're going to be talking about territorial gold pieces. Not so legally we, anyway. Well, true. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a I fair point. I am not suggesting anything nefarious. Yeah, Jeff and I aren't going to pull an Ocean's uh, an Ocean's eleven or twelve or thirteen or eight, 
whatever there are a bunch of those movies now uh we're not going to do that we're not we're not going to heist some valuable coin but uh, eric p newman's collection which as i mentioned uh, began selling in 2013 included in addition to a spectacular array of world and u.s coins and interesting u.s patterns i would encourage any listeners to go to ngc's website has uh, a full catalog of all the images of coins from eric p newman's collection it's a pretty spectacular grouping of numismatic items. I would encourage any interested person to go and, uh, and check that out. But he also had a whole bunch of California territorial gold pieces. One specific one that I'm going to talk about is actually the finest example known uh, was in his collection. It's an 1852 Humbert territorial $10 gold coin. So what is a territorial gold piece and what is this Humbert? Humbug, Humbert, whatever. After gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in 1848, and then you had a whole rush of prospectors and and other people coming out to try to find gold in 1849, an issue quickly arose, which is, well, what do we do with the gold? You know, how do we how do we turn it into money? How do we monetize the metal that we're dragging out of the earth? So beginning in the late 1840s into the early 1850s, a number of different groups began striking their own gold coins. Now, the quality of these coins varies pretty widely. As you might imagine, these were sort of provisional mints that were being set up by different companies. A major figure in this sort of, you know, gold rush frontier history was Augustus Humbert, who was a watchmaker from New York, who in 1850 was appointed to be the United States assayer uh, in the city of San Francisco. Basically, the U.S. government needed to start processing um, the gold that was being taken out of the ground. It opened an assay office in San Francisco and assigned Humbert to run it. So beginning in 1851... This assay office began striking gold coins, sometimes referred to as slugs, is a term that's often used, just referring to the fact that they're they're heavy weight. They were, they were essentially tr- uh, struck and traded based on uh, their gold weight. So these slugs were produced between 1851 and 1853. The San Francisco Mint would then open uh, in 1854, which would eliminate the need for uh, the assay office's provisional coin issues. The really notable piece, there are a couple of examples uh, in Eric Newman's collection, is an 1852 territorial $10 gold piece. Now, initially, the U.S. Assay Office was empowered only to uh, strike slugs, ingots, whatever term you want to use for them, valued at $50 or more. So they could only, you know, these are high denomination pieces that represented quite a bit of gold. But a need for lower denomination uh, circulating coins to conduct commerce in the city meant that beginning in 1852, they were allowed to strike $10 and $20 gold slugs as well. So the really extraordinary example is an 1852 Humbert Territorial gold slug, and it's certified MS-68, which is an extraordinarily high grade for a coin of this type. And in fact, this is the, it's the finest known example. And the next finest known example is certified MS-62. So this coin beats the next finest known example by a full six grades. So this is an extraordinarily nice piece, truly unique in terms of its level of preservation. And it was struck two years for the opening of the San Francisco Mint and represents a really interesting sort of confluence of frontier history, the history of the gold rush, um, minting and minting technology history. Uh, it's really a fascinating piece. So I thought that uh, as a nod to the Newman Numismatic Portal and the theme of this week's podcast that I would talk about this truly extraordinary gold piece minted in 1852. Now that you have shared those little bits of trivia, I have the trivia question from the last episode. All right. You can answer that, and then I will ask you the trivia question for the next episode. 
The question was, before the euro was adopted in 2002, what was the monetary unit of Austria? Now, this is a novice level question. And of course, for you, it's a gimme because you've spent time in Austria and you collect Austrian coins. So I did. What is the answer? So the answer is the Austrian shilling. It's that is correct. Not Kurt, though. Not Kurt Schilling, the the bloody sock of uh, the the bloody sock pitcher for the Boston Red Sox, and not the shilling or uh, the British denomination either. There's a it's Correct. spelled differently. There's a C in the Austrian denomination, but shilling s h i l l i n g uh, was a pre decimal uh, British denomination. But no, shilling spelled s c h i l l i n g was the Austrian currency before the euro. You got it. So if the listeners have been paying attention to thus far, the answer to this question will be obvious because we've mentioned the answer in our discussions, except we haven't couched it that way. So you have to- This is intriguing. We can have our listeners do a little bit of detective work. Yes. So the question for the next episode is, what two U.S. Mint facilities are located on military compounds? One of these, I think, is a gimme. That's a good question. The other may be a little more difficult, but we have mentioned it here today. So what two U.S. Mint facilities are located on military compounds? We will have the answer to that next week. In the interim, though, please enjoy our interview with Len Augsberger of the Newman Numismatic Portal. It was certainly interesting to talk to somebody who's sort of on the on the front lines of, of digitizing and trying to compile a database of useful numismatic information. So please enjoy. We are very lucky to be joined by Len Augsberger, the project coordinator of the Newman Numismatic Portal uh, housed in Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks so much for joining us, Len. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I enjoy reading Coin World every week, so uh, hopefully we can su- provide some interesting information for the listeners today. <laughs> All right, I think that's what we're trying to do. So, uh, so we're really glad to have you here. So, going to start off a, a little broad. So, you work as the project coordinator of the Newman Numismatic Portal, one of the largest ever efforts to digitize numismatic literature and have scans of, of coins and things. What? are the origins of the Newman Numismatic Portal project, and how did you get involved initially? So the origins were when the Newman Family and Foundation made the decision to sell the Eric Newman uh, Numismatic Collection around 2012-2013. They felt that, you know, this is great. We're going to generate a lot of revenue selling all this stuff. How can we give back to numismatics? Um, how can we create a legacy for uh, Eric P. Newman and the family being generally progressive and always looking forward uh, felt that, well, you know, the future of numismatics really is very much digital. So, you know, what can we do in that space? And from there, the idea was formed uh, to create an online site, a reference site for numismatics, and to make that available to everyone on a free and forever basis. Sounds like not only a valuable service, but a tremendous (laughs) undertaking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what is the most significant hurdle logistically, technologically, uh, or otherwise, uh, in the process of digitizing such a a massive body of information? How How do you start on that track? And yeah, what is the most uh, significant challenge? So there are 
sort of three things in play here. First of all is getting the electronic platform set up, um, having the capability to scan, uh, having the capability to host all that information and present it to uh, users on the internet. Um, but once that's in place, you don't have to tweak it a lot. Uh, you've got a, some digital solution there and then you start building. So that's part one. But then once that's out of the way, there, there's two main challenges. First is physically acquiring all the literature. And then second is uh, getting permission to present it with full view to the users. Um, and that's where we get into copyright issues. So with respect to physically acquiring the material, um, we had, of course, the Eric P. Newman Library was already in St. Louis, and we had access to all of that. It's probably on the order of 20,000 volumes. So a lot of material has been scanned from that, and uh, that material is all uh, stored at Washington University, so we have direct access to it. We've had many users have uh, physically loaned us materials. Uh, Dan Hamelberg, who uh, owns uh, probably the foremost library of American numismatic literature, certainly the foremost private library, uh, has loaned us some wonderful things uh, that we've been able to scan uh, his library. And then a lot of uh, different clubs and societies and institutions and just individuals have physically loaned us stuff. So getting uh, all that, there's a lot of logistical challenges in terms of bringing this stuff in, scanning it, uh, making sure it gets back to the correct user or correct loaner. So that, that that's the challenge of just dealing with physical literature. The second challenge is the uh, copyright issues, um, getting permission to actually present the material that we scan with full view. So again here, this is really a, a community-driven effort, and a lot of individuals um, who have created works have uh, released copyright to us uh, or given us uh, permission to present their material online, and uh, a lot of different uh, numismatic organizations and clubs have a lot of uh, numismatic periodicals that they've allowed us to present on Newman Portal. So uh, we've been able to build a really nice collection of uh, material that is available with full view to the users. There are still um, a lot of commercial things out there that we don't have permission to put on. And, uh, you know, with respect to publishers, you know, they have to make a living too. So can't just take copyrighted material and, and put it out there. We have to have permission to do it. So um, obviously we have to be respectful of that and we can't uh, expect all the commercial publishers to just turn over everything that they've, they've created over the years and, and let us put it out there with full view. But uh, for the most part, the community has been, been reasonable and um, really tried to participate in uh, opening up content uh, in order to share it with everyone else. It seems from my exposure to the NNP that you all have, as you know, cast a very wide net. Uh, do you have an idea of how many pages or volumes or, or is there a number that you can put on what is currently accessible and, you know, get a sense of for somebody who's not familiar with the portal, just what exactly is out there? Because it's it's seemingly everything uh, obviously not but it's it's uh, you've done such a such a thorough job so far and and I've been there to the museum Eric the the Newman Money Museum in the the basement of the 
the one building, the art museum there at WashU uh, as, a, as a St. Louis native myself and, and seeing the library. But how much is in there? So in the Newman portal itself, the, the digital part of it, uh, we've got about 30,000 documents um, totaling about 3 million pages. So pretty substantial library. A lot of that is periodicals that uh, various groups have opened up to us. We have a lot of archival material uh, from uh, starting with the Eric P. Newman papers, but other people have opened up archival material to us as well. Because we have a scanning center at the American Numismatic Society in New York, We've been able to scan a lot of their archival material, with it, which they've uh, generously opened to us, and have also scanned a very large number of uh, auction catalogs uh, at ANS and uh, within our St. Louis Scanning Center. What are some of the I- items that you haven't gotten yet that you just can't wait to get your hands on, uh, despite you know the many the many partners that are participating and 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 sharing? What's what's out there that Gosh, you just haven't been able to locate, or uh, you just don't have things lined up right. We can usually find the physical material. We have access to the American Numismatic Society Library. Uh, we have access to the Dan Hamelberg Library. I think probably the bigger challenge is actually um, getting permission to present the material on Newman Portal. I get a lot more excited when. We can open up new material like that. Um, in terms of uh, physically acquiring material, it tends to be a little bit simpler. You know, we have a few go-to sources, and we can always call other people too. So, the copyright end of things is a little bit more challenging. A couple of titles we're working with right now, we have uh, actually scanned all of Coin World. Uh, back to 1960, but uh, we don't have permission to uh, present that to users. Um, and we've had a few discussions with, with Rick Amos and hopefully we can do something there in the future, but nothing, nothing happening right now. So that, that's a big one that we'd like to put out there. Same thing with numismatic news. We have not scanned that yet. We will be scanning it in 2020. Um, and again, it would be great if we could just open that up to everyone and make it searchable. Um, but, uh, you know, we're not quite there with, with the copyright holders with respect to that. So, so those are two big titles we'd, we'd like to put out there. There are still hundreds, uh, thousands of, of reference books uh, still under copyright. Um, so we can't make all of that material available to users as well. And, and again, there's a balance here because publishers have to make money. Authors have to make money. And if all this material is free, no one's going to create great new content anymore. So there's a tension here and we certainly appreciate that uh, people have to well, be compensated for their work. That sounds like a perfect segue, though, to something that we weren't even uh, – I, I don't even uh, think we're thinking of. Uh, the Newman News, Numismatic Portal has, uh, in the last year, I believe it is, started creating grants for authors to create new research. Is that right? Can you can you walk us through that process? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, – the uh, first Newman Grant Program uh, was announced on uh, May 25th, uh, 2019. Uh, the intention is that it will be an annual program. Uh, we chose that date because that was Eric Newman's birthday. So in 2019, we made uh, eight grants 
to various authors and uh, content creators. And it's not just writing a book. I mean, uh, one guy is like putting a database together. So this can come in, in different forms. Um, but th this was just uh, money provided directly from the Newman Foundation to uh, various numismatic researchers, typically on the order of several thousand dollars uh, per award and uh, with the intention of enabling uh, numismatic research. And then, of course, uh, Newman Portal is able to present um, all of the content that they create from those efforts. As an example, uh, we had uh, one researcher from Australia, uh, Malcolm Mathias, and he was uh, very interested in some 19th century counterfeit detectors. And we were able to subsidize his travel from Australia to U.S., where he visited many private collections and many institutions. And the result is he has uh, a complete census of this particular uh, brand of, of counterfeit detectors and has really advanced the knowledge in that area. And our intention is that Newman Grants uh, will be an annual program, and uh, we expect to make an announcement in spring 2020 to individuals who want to apply for uh, awards next year. Outside of, of that sort of uh, support through, through the Newman Grant to, to sort of explore the portal, what other advice could you offer uh, to researchers, um, you know, amateur or professional, who are daunted by the sheer volume of material available on the NNP. I mean, it's a huge amount of stuff. What advice in terms of, of thinning that out a little bit and, and narrowing in on certain material, what advice would you give to a researcher who's just trying to get their head around and sort of start to right. make sense? So I, I think the first thing is to um, just understand what the high-level NNP categories are. So, for example... We have auction catalogs, and those are divided up by auction house. So there's maybe a couple hundred different auction houses on there. And then you can drill down to a specific auction house and look at catalogs for that auction firm. So, for example, for Stacks, we have nearly a thousand sale catalogs that they've done since 1935. So you have auction catalogs, you have periodicals. Uh, which are all these wonderful publications that uh, different specialty groups put out or uh, the American Numismatic Association puts out on a monthly basis. And then we have archival material, which is manuscripts or correspondence. Primarily, uh, that's the, the Newman papers, but there are other archival, archival groups as well. Uh, for example, from the American Numismatic Society, we've scanned the Virgil Brand Ledgers, uh, which was a 30 or 40 volume set recording the contents of that important collection in the early 20th century. And then there are also, uh, in addition to the archives, periodicals, and auction catalogs, we have a section for books, and uh, we have a section for image collections, which is just strictly images. Uh, all this is searchable from the top level, but it, it helps to be able to break it down a little bit. So hopefully a description of those high-level categories is helpful. Talking about some of the more obscure items made me just remember a recent uh, purchase of mine of numismatic literature, and it makes me want to go rush out there and see if the uh, the portal has it. Courtney Coffing for about 10 years, produced a, a monthly, just sort of, you know, two to four, six pages on uh, 
not geld, and he called it Fractor, the Fractor. And I was able to pick up a set of that from a dealer in North Carolina for like 25 bucks. And it, it just, it speaks to the array of stuff that's out there that uh, collectors may not even be aware of because they were in such limited uh, print runs or these items are too fragile to be put on public exhibit and to be looked at. How important is making this accessible? What what are some of the things that you've uncovered and been able to present to the public that otherwise just would be locked on a shelf somewhere or in a private collection that nobody would see uh, outside of a few privileged Yeah, you folks? never know where it's going to come from. Um, I had an inquiry the other day someone was doing genealogical research and they just happened on our site and their grandparents had been numismatists and there were all these references to them in various publications. And, you know, if, if we're not there, they're never going to find that. So there's sort of a, a, a needle in a haystack element going on here. You never know where an inquiry is going to come from. Um, so we, we've had people from even outside the U.S. have chanced upon something that was interesting to them that they wouldn't have found anywhere else. So it's sort of the accumulation of all of this stuff that leads people to be able to make discoveries. In trying to sift through a digitized catalog, all of this material, is there a, an individual item or group of items that has really surprised you so far? What, what has surprised you the most or what has been a particularly interesting find? And has anything, first of all, truly valuable come out of the woodwork, conceptualizing value, however you, you want to define it, whether it's it's intellectual value or, or dollar value, has anything come out of the woodwork that you just didn't expect that really kind of caught you off guard? Yeah. So we had uh, one of our Newman grants uh, last spring was to uh, Christopher McDowell to study the um, hit tokens and to make census of all known examples. So he did that. It was great. We put it out there. And then we had a just a, a random user in the UK had purchased one of these um, from just a, a junk bin and wondered what it was. And uh, he got to searching on Newman Portal. And all of a sudden, there's all this information about this very specific thing that he just purchased. And uh, so he makes a great find. And uh, at the same time, we uh, get to pass that back to Chris and, you know, tell him, hey, uh, we, we found some great new information for you, for your study. So it's, it's a win-win for everybody. What material interests you personally the most? What, and, and what types of sources and what sort of range of the material that you have access to? What do you find the most useful in terms of research? I think just having the text searchability of all this stuff at once is it's a real breakthrough and you find things that there would just be no other way of finding. So um, for example, uh, this year, I wrote an article about the first six, billion, first six volumes of the numismatist um, published by American Numismatic Association from 1888 to 1893. And I was trying to create a census of all the known copies, um, of which there's about a dozen. And what I was able to do by being able to search all this all at once, I could find references to specific copies that, that maybe uh, John Ford handled or uh, Eric Newman handled. And these were all articles coming out of, you know, Coin World or other sources. And without being able to search all this stuff at once, there, there's literally no way you could ever find it. 
So having a tool like this really enables us to find a lot more detail on, on the things that we study. It seems the uh, the end goal of Newman Numismatic Portal is is sort of the omnibus clearinghouse for all the the numismatic information that's out there. Is that a, a fair description? Uh, if if it's not, what um, how would you describe it? And then then we can talk about you know there like you mentioned Coin World as a, as a, a big get. The A and A has a lot of stuff you know the numismatist digitized that's that's. Um, available for their members. So what opportunities, aside from a few that you've mentioned, still exist for broader exposure? In terms of a lot of the primary material, we've acquired it. So, you know, all the stacks catalogs, historic auction catalogers like the Chapman's all on there, you know, important mid-20th century figures like uh, Max Mel and, and New, New Netherlands, uh, sort of all the top level stuff is in there. And we deliberately did that. We went after those targets first. There is a lot of stuff in the mid-tier that we don't have. So maybe somebody who conducted 40 or 50 auction sales in the mid-20th century, that sort of thing is not on there. So we still have a lot to work through there. And then there are a lot of state and local organizations that have produced newsletters or journals over the years. I was working with Missouri Numismatic Society on, an, on a number of things over the last few years. And there are these newsletters from the 1950s that apparently just don't exist. Um, you know, we found a few in, in the Newman collection, but somebody out there somewhere has a run of these. And, uh, you know, we just haven't found it yet. So, there's still a lot of material like that out there where you were talking about the Frock Tour. I can't imagine there are very many copies of that left in existence. So, And when I yeah. had a chance to get it, I jumped at it. <laughs> so if you don't have it, maybe, maybe I don't know, if Courtney Coffing, um, you know, there's, if, you know, the estate or yeah. maybe he's still alive. I honestly don't recall, but, you know, that would be <laughs> something. I'm coming home on tomorrow to, for, yeah, for exactly. Christmas. I, I could bring um, it along. <laughs> so, but, you know, as more and more people discover about uh, Newman Portal, uh, we get more contributions of, of that kind of material. So um, it just all builds on itself. And, uh, you know, we, we keep going. So you are, uh, in many ways, the perfect point person for this because you have a background in technology, I believe. But you also, of course, have the numismatic literature background. You are author of one coin book, co-author of three others, and, and yes, a collector yes. of numismatic literature. How have you seen the value of certain items be affected uh, in the marketplace because of their, their sure. availability? So a lot of this was portal. happening already. Um, Google Books, which has now scanned about 25 million books, backed up their truck to several large university libraries and literally scanned all of them. So a lot yeah. of classic things yeah. like, you know, Crosby's Early Coins of America or the uh, first series of American Journal of Numismatics. These things were all kind of out there and, and percolating. Of course, Newman Portal drove that up to a whole nother, nother level. Um, and what we've seen is that, uh, and, and this is sort of uh, similar to some of the bifurcation in the coin market itself, but... What, what's happened is the, the common items have gotten cheaper and the more desirable items have gotten more expensive. So some of these numismatic literature items, like, for example, a 19th century plated Chapman catalog, 
Um, it just has a lot of foundational value. They're beautiful items on their own. They are rare. They are dedicated to uh, important numismatic materials. They have photographic plates. So material like that hasn't been touched at all. And if anything, has gotten uh, even more desirable. Whereas some of the more common things, you know, if you have some random stacks catalog from the 1980s, it really has very little value. Uh, during the heyday of the numismatic literature market years ago, uh, if you had a box of those things, you know, you might actually be able to, to resell it to a dealer as you had a lot of uh, new literature collectors entering the market and wanting to put together runs of these things. But now when you can just go on Newman Portal and if you just need to look at a specific auction lot, you're much more inclined to do that than actually purchase the catalog. But the items that are, are truly historic, rare, physically well-made or attractively well-made with good craftsmanship, those things remain uh, quite desirable. And the Newman Portal has thus to this point focused on American auctions and all that. Is there any sort of plans to expand that to some of the international auction stuff? I know we have a, a stack of duplicate catalogs. I'd be more than happy yeah. to bring um, to, to St. Louis do, the next time uh, I come. We do scan international material as it comes in. We don't proactively go out and seek it. We sort of felt like just the American numismatic field was big enough on its own without trying to bite off world numismatics. Things really expand when you open up. So we're comfortable with our niche. And there, there is some crossover with American collectors. Um, for example, we're going to be uh, scanning all the material from the International Numismatic Commission, uh, which has been holding conferences for about 100 years. And there are a lot of uh, Americans involved with that. So we, we get some crossover um, things coming out of uh, the American Numismatic Society. For example, the Numismatic Monographs series, uh, which is about 150 volumes, has a lot of ancient and world content in it. So, you know, we want to be complete, so we scan all of them. So there are some things like that, um, but our, our focus is uh, U.S. numismatics. Taking a, a longer view of the, the current work and, and the future uh, project for the Newman Numismatic Portal, what's the best case scenario of what the Newman Numismatic Portal could provide? And what do you think the greatest value that this project contributes to, not only to the, you know, the lives of, of numismatic researchers and people who want to write books, but for, for ordinary, quote unquote, ordinary collectors or people who aren't uh, particularly interested in the, the research or the more academic side of it, but who are more interested in just collecting coins, what value for sort of right. the, so the ordinary collector the, do you think that this uh, offers? The scanning is just sort of the first generation of this. There are a lot of directions we could go, and technology isn't slowing down at all. So we're going to have all these amazing new capabilities in terms of uh, machine learning and other technologies that could impact us going forward. So you know, one of the holy grails is for new collectors or even experienced collectors is to be able to just take an image of an object and have the computer tell you what it is. There are various solutions out there with varying degrees of success, but I think that's kind of where we're headed. And, you know, that's something that, that we aren't doing actively today, but we'd very much like to do in the future. The other thing that you don't see so much on the site today, but, you know, while we have the documents, we have the literature the discoverability of all the content is probably not at the level it could be. So eventually, 
you want to get to the point where uh, somebody can just type in a U.S. coin and, you know, we'll be able to go into the site and, and deliver, you know, a good overview of that as opposed to just, you know, a list of documents that might mention it. So there are some things in terms of usability that we have room to grow. You know, as I said, the digitization of the documents is just the first step. As of uh, you made reference to being able to identify coins just with images, the, there's a, an app out there called Coinoscope that a lot of world coin collectors use to identify their world coins. Because, you know, as, as you're, I'm sure, well aware, there are many places that don't use English language or, or characters that are familiar to us, whether it's Cyrillic or some of these others. And, and that seems like a, a good um sort of a starting point for being able to identify items. I want to close this by, by asking, I guess, a, a call or creating a call to action for the listeners. What can the numismatic community, Coin World listeners especially, uh, what can they do to, to support the numismatic portal, um, to use it more effectively, and to just um, spread awareness? Yeah, I think and, uh, especially for authors and researchers, you're probably not quite finishing off your plate if, uh, if if you're not using Newman Portal to some extent. And I think for casual collectors and people just getting started, I would you know just challenge them to dig into subject matter a little bit and try and learn a little bit more of the history about the things you collect, not just look at them as beautiful objects, which which they are, and we can certainly all admire coins at that level. But I think the more you're engaged with it and, and trying to learn more about it, uh, the more uh, successful your collecting will be in the long run. Wonderful. I think I can speak for Chris when I say thank you for taking some time today with us to discuss this. Uh, we both uh, use the portal and appreciate it. And, uh, and, and of course, the Newman uh, name is a little more special to me because I got to come out uh -huh. and see the museum opening. I think it was 2007. Being a St. Louis native, it is hard not to know who Eric P. Newman is. So thank you again for uh, sharing the story of the portal All with right, us. Good talking to you guys. And we'll look forward to seeing you uh, down the road. And that was our interview with Len Augsburger of the Newman Numismatic Portal. This is another time where we remind you, please subscribe. Please contact us with questions, all that good stuff. We want to hear from you. We just uh, we hear from people all the time. Speaking of listeners contacting us, we just had a listener contact us today as we record this episode. Yeah, we did. We got an email uh, from David Tranbarger. I genuinely apologize if I'm mispronouncing your name. That's just how it appears to me. And he mentioned that we had talked about William Sheldon, uh, the famous or infamous, a little more infamous than famous, probably, numismatist, who, uh, you know, uh, in addition to his work at Ivy League schools on different physiology projects, which are problematic, also wrote the reference on early American copper coinage. Mr. Tranbarger was uh, kind enough to point out that uh, Sheldon also created the 70-point grading scale, which is the scale used by pretty much everyone, at least in the United States, um, as sort of the standard uh, numismatic grading scale. So though Mr. Sheldon may have maybe sort of a, a troubling and problematic figure, it is thanks to him that we have the grading scale. That's something that we were remiss in not having mentioned. So well, thanks for I bringing mean, that to our attention. We were talking about some of the um, 
infamous things that Sheldon has has done. And uh, you know, the Sheldon scale is well known, and and I suppose we could have mentioned it in that vein. So we certainly yeah will the, rectify that today. The uh, tenor of our discussion though was more highlighting the not so much his contributions, which were many. They shouldn't be discounted at all. But we didn't think to include that as a, as part of his accomplishments. But yeah. that is something that uh, should be noted. So despite his sort of troubling history, we have him to thank for the 70-point scale. So, you know, if you hear anything in the podcast that you want to respond to, if you have any questions for us, uh, feel absolutely free to reach out to us. And you might even have your name uh, on the podcast. So, as always, until next week, happy collecting. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. Thanks for the segue, big voice guy. This is Brian again reminding you to sign up for the Coin World email newsletters. It's free and easy to do. Just click on the link I put in the show notes, choose your topics, and the high-quality content you expect from CoinWorld will be on its way shortly. So click on that link to sign up, and thanks for listening to the show.